Welcome to Screen Time with Rokan and Richard Roper. Rokan is out for the next couple of weeks, but you've got me, Richard Roper, and got some really fun stuff. Uh, today we're going to talk about the 40th birthday. That's right, the 40th birthday of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which means all those kids from Ridgemont High would be like 58 years old now. Holy shit, they'd have kids of their own. 40 years ago, Fast Times at Ridgemont High came out. We're going to talk about that, how the movie came to be, my personal memories of seeing it for the first time and then seeing it many times later, and why it resonates so much more than the other so-called uh, you know, raunchy teen comedies, if you will, of the 1980s, why it is considered a classic. And then we're also going to take a look at reviews of um, a bunch of new stuff that has come out in the last couple of weeks or is coming out very shortly. So let's start off by taking a listen to a clip from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. This guy's been stoned since the third grade. Yes? Yeah, I'm registered in this class. What class? This is U.S. history. See the globe right there. Really? Hey. May I come in? Oh, please. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. (sighs) Sorry I'm late. It's just like this new schedule's totally confusing. Mr. Spicoli. That's the name they gave me. Hey, you're ripping my car. Yeah. Hey, bud, what's your problem? No problem at all. You know, there are so many great lines in Ridgemont High, and then, of course, there's also some of the most famous scenes of all time. Uh, we, we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, mention, of course, Phoebe Cates coming out of the pool to the sounds of moving in stereo by the cars, and poor Judge Reinhold uh, getting caught in the bathroom wondering why nobody knocks anymore but it's a lot more i mean yes it's an r-rated movie and there's there's nudity and there's a uh, quite a bit of sexual talk and uh, frank language but i think one of the reasons that ridgemont high uh, resonates 40 years later and it did come out in august of 1982 is that amy heckerling the director did such a great job you can just t- and she always has been wonderful she continues to do great work and Amy has uh, just a way with actors, and we'll talk a little bit about the cast uh, shortly here because uh, it's interesting. A couple of the leads are mostly known for just being in this movie. They've done some other things, and then many of the supporting players uh, actually have gone on to huge things, but even the smallest role is well cast, and everybody gets their moment to shine. The screenplay's by Cameron Crowe. The great Cameron Crowe, of course, who has gone on to do a dozen uh, memorable movies, uh, but this was his early start. In fact, you know, if you remember Almost Famous, one of his best films, that was kind of based on um, the lead character who was the teenage uh, rock and roll journalist. It was pretty much based on Cameron's own life. He started writing for Rolling Stone and other publications when he was, I think, 15 years old. And then he did a book in 1981 called Fast Times at Ridgemont High, A True Story. Now, Ridgemont High, he changed the name of the high school and he also changed the name names of a lot of the actual high school students and did composites. But the deal was he was so young looking even then that he went undercover at Claremont High School in San Diego as a student and wrote about his experience. So the book is Fast Times at Ridgemont High, a true story. It's actually, it is a true story, but it's sort of that kind of what they used to call the new journalism where they would combine uh, real life circumstances and real life characters with some dramatizations and some composites, and that was done in part to protect uh, the identities, especially of high school students, and also just made for a better story. And then he did the screenplay for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And as you know, I'm sure, it's all about a year in the lives of sophomores and then seniors. The sophomores are Stacey Hamilton, played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, 
uh, Mark Ratner was played by Brian Backer. And then there was the older students, uh, including uh, Stacy's older brother, Brad, played by the great Judge Reinhold. Uh, he had had a two-year relationship with his girlfriend, uh, Lisa. Amanda Weiss played her. And then we had Damone, Robert Romanus played uh, Damone. And then we had all these other, you know, kind of marginal characters who stole the show, including, of course, the great Sean Penn as Jeff Spicoli. And one of my favorite movie scenes of all time, of course, is when Mr. Pizza Guy delivers a pie to Mr. Hand's class with the immortal Ray Walston playing Mr. Hand. Let's give it a listen. The United States decided to throw a little weight around and, uh... Who is it? Mr. Pizza Guy. Again? Mr. Pizza Guy, sir. Pour the deviled cheese and sausage. Right here, dude. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learning about Cuba, having some food. Mr. Spicoli, you're on dangerous ground here. You're causing a major disturbance on my time. I've been thinking about this, Mr. Han. If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? Just so funny. Just so funny. And if you, you're rewatching the film, which I did recently too, you'll notice also there are several big time actors who are just getting their careers started who are in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, including Forrest Whitaker. Now he's the big brother. Remember, Spicoli goes out with his buddy and they, they wreck the car and Forrest Whitaker is the big high school star and it's his car and they make it look like the rival team messed up his car and then he goes crazy and they win the game by like a thousand touchdowns. And then uh, all the stoners who hang out with Spicoli, uh, including uh, Eric Stoltz, who went on to do, of course, you know, The Mask and so many other great movies. Anthony Edwards, who was about four years away from playing Goose in Top Gun and going on to ER and lots of other stuff. And even Nicky Cage, Nicholas Cage, you'll see him in the background. And Nick Cage at the time was going by his actual name, which was Nicholas Coppola. He is related, of course, to the famous uh, Francis Ford Coppola is his uncle. And um, he w went by Nicholas Coppola and then early in his career decided that he would actually change his name because he didn't want to appear to be riding on the coattails of the Coppola name, wanted to make his own name, which he really, really did a good job of. But his actual name is Nicholas Coppola and he's in the IMDb and et cetera as uh, Nicholas Coppola. Let's go into the, some of the cool things about Fast Times at Ridgemont High that you might not have noticed. I, I, I saw this, actually, I was still in college, and I remember I was about to go back to college because it was August of 82, and I went to the River Oaks Theater in Calumet City because I would just go see everything I could, and I'd always go early because you could get tickets for, I think, about $2.85 back then. I had summer jobs and stuff, but every, every nickel counted. And so I would always go to the first showing of movies on the Friday they opened. And a lot of times back then, they would have showings as early as 10 o'clock in the morning. So I'd drive my beat-up Camaro over to the River Oaks Theater in Calumet City, park in the mostly empty parking lot, and get my ticket. And I didn't know a lot about it. I you know, read some of the reviews that had come out in the newspaper that day. Uh, back then, you didn't have tons of hype about movies. I mean, you, certain movies did, for sure. Uh, but it was old-fashioned television advertising, newspaper advertising, radio advertising was a big thing. It's one of the things I love about uh, Quentin Tarantino's uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that you hear uh, while Brad Pitt's character is driving around Hollywood and the greater Los Angeles area, you often hear radio ads for different TV shows and movies of the time because those would play on the radio all the time. That was that was a way you'd get really hyped. You'd be listening to you know your favorite morning and afternoon uh, DJs on AM or even fancy FM radio, and you'd hear the ads for something like this. 
Uh, so Fast Times at Richmond High had, had a decent amount of hype because the book had done pretty well. These were not big stars. I mean, you know, Ray Walston had been around, obviously, since the 50s and 60s. He was a character actor. The young actors were all at the beginning beginnings of their respective careers. But it did have a, a you know, a very cool uh, soundtrack with uh, songs by uh, Jackson Brown, Joe Walsh, I remember, The Go-Go's. So the soundtrack was a pretty big deal. Um, Jimmy Buffett had a song in there, Oingo Boingo. And then there were some songs that were in the movie that weren't on the soundtrack. And that usually has to do with paying. You pay so much for the movie, to, uh, for a song to be in a movie, but then you pay a lot more if you want to include it in the soundtrack. So there was, of course, the famous scene, Led Zeppelin's Cashmere. We, in fact, I mentioned the Go-Go's. We got the beat by the Go-Go's, which kicks off the film. That's not on the soundtrack. American Girl by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and the aforementioned Moving in Stereo by the Cars. All in the movie but not on the soundtrack. There's also, I want to talk about a song that is not one of Stevie Nicks' most famous songs, but it's one of my favorites. And it's actually put to really poignant use in this movie because even though it is a raunchy comedy, there's some serious drama here when Damone and um, Stacy hook up and then she winds up pregnant and she's calling and trying to get him to help out and he says he'll come up with half the money and then he can't and then she's calling and he's not calling her back and there's a song called sleeping angel uh, by stevie nicks that plays on the soundtrack that's a beautiful and haunting song and again just a beautiful touch by amy heckerling there to include that you know and there's also the scene then of course where and this of course resonates even more nowadays with everything that's happening with the supreme court in, in various states but there's the scene where, you know, Stacy uh, has to go by herself because the dude abandoned her and isn't there for her. Uh, and she asked Brad to drop her off at the bowling alley says, in the middle of the day. So she's going bowling with friends. And he's like, when do you go bowling? And he looks in the rearview mirror and see that she sees that she goes across the street to the clinic. And then he, when she is ready to leave, you know, they tell her she's got to have someone with her. She says, oh, her boyfriend's downstairs. She had just intended to go home alone. And um, this is kind of a really touching scene here because Brad is waiting for Stacy. And let's take a listen to that scene. So when do you go bowling anyway? Okay, Brad, please don't tell Mom and Dad. Come on. Who did it? You're not going to tell me, are you? Okay. It'll just be your secret. You all right? Yeah. Come on. You hungry? Yeah. So he turns out to be a great big brother. He's going to keep that secret. He's going to make sure she's okay. Uh, kind of a touching scene in the middle of this wacky comedy. Fast Times at Ridgemont High in 2005 was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. I don't think anybody expected that when it came out, but it continues to resonate in part because of the, so many of the actors that we know so well now, but that screenplay is so great. It's beautifully edited. I want to actually quote a fellow film critic here, Dana Stevens, who, uh, wrote an essay for the Criterion Collection uh, release of Fast Times uh, just last year. And I thought she did a beautiful job of, of explaining, I think, why this film resonates. Dana Stevens writing, Fast Times is the polar opposite of exploitation. Deep in its horny heart, this is the story of one 15-year-old girl's clumsy and sometimes painful introduction to the world of sex, related without judgment or preconception or the least hint of sentimentalization. 
Heckerling's film was a raunchy crowd pleaser, replete with stoner humor, a masturbation gag, and a blowjob tutorial that makes use of school cafeteria carrots, but it's also attuned to the emotional lives of teenagers, girls, and boys in ways that place it far ahead of its time. I think that's a just so well written there by Dana Stevens. And again, we you know we talked at the top a little bit about why Fast Times resonates. I mean, there was a ton of these movies like Porky's and The Last American Virgin, and just tons of these uh, high school comedies. They were almost all rated R. They almost all had a ton of nudity. A lot of the humor would not play well. 40 years later, uh, but there was more heart and soul and intelligence to fast time. So I think it's the best in that genre and continues to resonate. 40 years ago, August, 1982. And, um, and you may have even heard about this during the pandemic. They did a table read for charity of fast times at Ridgemont high, the original script. And they got all these huge stars to play the various characters, Jennifer Aniston, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, uh, Henry Golding, Jimmy Kimmel, John Legend, and uh, Sean Penn was the only one who was uh, in the original production who was involved. And the narrator was Morgan Freeman. Uh, let's take a listen to a little bit of the table read of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Standing area. None of them are wearing shirts. Yeah, but something, something happened to them. Just, just come on. Just come. Can you just come on? <laughs> All right? All right. You can't fix it. I can fix every piece of this car. I can fix every piece of this car. You wasted a total of eight hours of my time this year. Oh, all right. <laughs> all right. All right. Aloha, Mr. Hand. <laughs> Slow dissolve, interior, Ridgemont Mall. Pretty great there. And I love the fact that uh, Jen... Aniston and Brad Pitt, who of course are famously, once were famously involved, played Linda Barrett and Brad Hamilton in that famous scene. Uh, table read was kind of fun, although you got to go back and see the original. All right, let's take a break. Let's hear from Rokan about Portillo's. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at a bunch of new and upcoming movies and streaming series. Let me tell you about our friends at Portillo's, the finest fast casual experience you're going to have in all of dining. Portillo's, you know, not just hot dogs. A lot of you know when it started in Chicago, people were like, "Oh, it's a hot dog shop." Oh wait, oh wait, we got we got Italian beef. Wait, we got Italian sausage. Wait, you got chocolate cake. <laughs> oh man, it's just uh, it's just one of the great experiences you can have. And I, I think I just said this a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. If you live somewhere where Portillo's is new in California, Arizona, parts of Florida. Check it out. Go. Have the chocolate cake. You get a little slice of home if you're from the Midwest, you're from Chicago, or you're from the East Coast too, because you know that that food will be very familiar to you as street food. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, it's gonna be so heavy. It's not. Mm. And can I just tell you something? Mm. The best thing about Portillo's mm. is that bun that they put the Italian beef on oh, yeah. that you get now when you get that dipped and it gets all wet, yeah. that is the perfect piece of bread. Mm -hmm. And, you know, carbs be damned. You can do it once a month. You're sure. not going to hurt anything. You'll be fine. Portillo's.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S is how you spell that. Portillo's.com. Find a store near you or order online and you can get it anywhere in the United States of America. Portillo's.com.
Welcome back to the Screen Time Podcast. I'm Richard Roper. Rokan is off. He'll be coming back soon. We just talked about Fast Times at Ridgemont High, 40th anniversary. If you haven't seen it, you got it. Check it out. And if you haven't seen it in a long time, trust me, it holds up really well. I really had a really good time rewatching it prior to the podcast. We haven't talked about new stuff in a while on the podcast. So I want to catch up on some stuff that's recently released and stuff that's just coming out. And we're going to start as usual with what not to watch. Uh, and these are all available now uh, on streaming or in the theaters. I was really let down by The Gray Man on Netflix. Uh, this was the most expensive Netflix original production, I believe, of all time, around $200 million in the budget. The Gray Man is directed by the Russo brothers, who did four of the biggest Marvel movies and were uh, some of the prime forces behind Arrested Development back in the day. These guys can do a lot of different things, and what they wanted to do here, I think, was kind of a a combination of a Bond movie with light humor, which we've seen in like the Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife and the Bodyguard's Wife's Hitman's Friend and all those movies and even a film called Red Notice. I'm not a huge fan of these because they usually get huge stars and big action pieces and lots of CGI and then they have no money left over apparently for a script. And that's certainly the case here. You've got uh, Chris Evans, you got Ryan Gosling, you got Anna Diarmas, a uh, terrific uh, bunch of supporting actors. It was great to see Billy Bob Thornton in this movie. We haven't seen a ton of Billy Bob in recent years. Here and there we see him. Uh, but it's just a nothing story. It's the classic thing. And everybody's in pursuit of the flash drive, the, the obligatory flash drive that has the information that'll rock the world. And I can't tell you how many movies I've seen where everybody's trying to get a hold of the flash drive. We call it, the device is called, a, you know, we call it in movie terms, the, the MacGuffin. This is like the Maltese Falcon was the MacGuffin. Tons of movies. It's about an object that is just what everybody's trying to get, but there's more to the story, obviously. What do you know about the Sierra program? Reckless mystery men you guys send in when you can't officially send anyone else. The gray man. Lloyd, they got an urgent locate and destroy. That could be fun. The man's got some street cred. You hurt? I mean, my ego's a little bruised. And have something they really want. What's your gut? It's gonna be my funeral you're going to next. You want to make an omelet? You got to kill some people. Uh, but he's the flash drive at this point that's incriminating everybody. We've seen it a million times, and it's just very loud, this movie. Lots of action pieces, horrible dialogue, and some really, really terrific actors not really getting a chance to shine at all. Uh, so we're, we're saying skip the gray man on Netflix. I was also really disappointed, and this is kind of in the same vein, even though it's a different uh, genre, and that's the, 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 the Thor Love and Thunder. Hands were once used for battle. Now they're but humble tools for peace. I need to figure out exactly who I am. I want to choose my own path. Live in the moment. My superheroing days are over. Remember what I told you. You ever feel lost? Just look into the eyes of the people that you love. Not me. What? just listening the most recent thor movie uh which again was done primarily as a comedy a romantic comedy if you will and is big and loud and clunky and you have chris hemsworth who's of course born to play thor and he's great natalie portman returning that's one oscar winner christian bale is the main villain that's another oscar winner and russell crowe as zeus that's another oscar winner you got triple academy award winners and honestly none of them are particularly excellent christian bale 
you know, he always sells his performances, no matter what he's in. So he's playing this villain uh, as if he were in a Greek tragedy. Uh, Russell Crowe is doing a Greek accent that's right out of like the cheeseburger, cheeseburger skit from Saturday Night Live, this exaggerated comedic turn that I thought undercut the entire movie because now we don't have, there, it didn't feel like there was any weight or if uh, to quote uh, Kiefer Sutherland, any gravitas to this movie because it's all done in such a light note. And even though there's death and tragedy in the film, that even that they kind of hedge their bets without giving too much away. I think it's one of the worst movies in the canon of Marvel Universe movies, which is now, you know, well over 20 films, Thor, Love and Thunder. Another big disappointment was the Terminal List on Amazon Prime. This is in the vein of uh, Jack Reacher in the Bourne movies, the classic story of the guy with, you know, extensive military training. He can do it all. And then he finds out that there's a vast conspiracy. So he has to go off the grid. He has to go rogue and get his revenge. Almost ready to begin, James. Copy. What happened? They're all gone. Everybody's gone. Twelve seals lost and no one in command even issues a statement? Nothing in this file adds up. Who has the capability to alter our signals? Change our records. Brother, that is God's hand kind of shit. You need somebody to help you prove it. I think it was an eight-part series. Very well filmed. Uh, I thought the main problem, honestly, is uh, Chris Pratt in the lead. And I've loved a lot of stuff Chris Pratt has done, going all the way back to Parks and Recreation. But these attempts to make him an action star, I think, are misguided. He doesn't have, I think he doesn't have, the persona or the deep acting chops or just the, the screen presence and menace to pull off an action franchise, unlike a Daniel Craig or a Tom Cruise or Matt Damon when he did play Jason Bourne. There's a ton of guys who can pull this stuff off. Back in the day, it was your Mel Gibsons and your Bruce Willis's. I don't think Chris Pratt is in their class as a hardcore action star dramatic actor. And when your lead isn't great, that pretty much undercuts the entire series. Now let's talk about some good stuff. Where the Crawdads Sing is a feature film based on a mega-selling uh, novel from a couple of years ago that sold 12 million copies. I have, like you, heard the tall tales told about the Marsh Girl, an abandoned child. I had a family once. They called me Kaya. Ah! A little girl surviving in the marsh on her own, reviled and shunned. Every creature does what it must to survive. And it, this is a very, it, it's the story, uh, Daisy Edgar Jones, I think is just absolutely spectacular in this role. She plays someone they call the Marsh Girl. She lives on her own in deep in the marshes of uh, North Carolina and is accused of murder the great David Strathern then shows up as her attorney. And there's a lot of flashbacks about her life uh, back in the day in the 50s and 60s. It is not a plausible story. And it, at points, you're just like, wow, for a Marsh girl, she really looks great. I don't know how she gets to shave her legs and shampoo her hair and uh, looks so terrific if she's living out in the marsh. But you kind of you suspend disbelief on that. It's the, the cinematography is absolutely glorious. Great lead performance. And it's kind of a good old fashioned comfort movie. I'm also recommending Only Murders in the Building Season 2. That's available now on Hulu. Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez make one of the best trios in recent television history. They're so good together. We knew Steve Martin and Martin Short were going to be great together. 
But now this, when I say the three amigos, I think of these three and forget about Chevy Chase in the movie because Martin Short and Steve Martin play off Selena Gomez so well, but she's equally good. I mean, we've seen her do a lot of things since she was a kid, but this is her best acting by far. New York City. Who doesn't want to become the talk of the town here? We've been warned not to speak out. But we here at Only Murders in the building, we will not be going quietly. We know what we have to do. Just be cool. Hey, who's cooler than me? Everyone. <laughs> and they're already coming back for a season three. And it. what I liked about season two is we also get some backstories on some previously unlikable characters that shed a new life on them. Also recommending uh, a documentary series on HBO called The Last Movie Stars. And this is a six-part series directed by Ethan Hawke about the lives of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Right before the pandemic started, one of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward's kids approached me to direct a documentary about Paul and Joanne. Paul had begun working on a memoir. They did over 100 interviews. He said to him, tell the truth, stuff they would never say if they weren't with friends. What happened to these tapes? He poured gasoline on them and lit them on fire. Wow. Except they had had them all transcribed. I'm trying to turn it into kind of like a play with voices. A community looking back. Uh, who were married for more than 50 years, did about, oh gosh, I don't know, three Broadway productions, tons, more than a dozen movies, and a lot of TV productions together, and then had this amazing personal life. But this is a warts and all documentary. It talks about the fact that Paul Newman was already married when he met Joanne Woodward and they carried on an affair for several years. Three kids from his previous marriage. Then they had a total of three more together and Joanne Woodward helped to raise all six and it gets into all that. But it's mostly about their incredible work. And everybody knows Paul Newman is one of the great movie stars of all time. I hope they remember too that Joanne Woodward was at least equally talented. The documentary gets into the fact that actually back in the 50s, she was considered the more natural method actor of the two. She won an Oscar. She did great work and kind of put her career on hold uh, to raise the kids while Paul Newman was having this amazing ascendancy in the 60s and 70s with uh, HUD and Cool Hand Luke and then you know, the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting and Roll After Roll. And uh, it's just beautifully done. Ethan Huck, what was going on here was that Paul Newman was going to do an autobiography with the screenwriter of Rebel Without a Cause and decided uh, that he didn't, and they had interviews with everybody, including Paul and Joanne and his first wife and all these directors and actors he worked with. And then Paul Newman burned all the tapes and he decided he didn't want to do it, but they had transcriptions of everything. So what Ethan Hawke did was he got a bunch of his friends together via Zoom to read the parts, if you will, of all of these interviews. So George Clooney voices the Paul Newman interviews, Laura Linney is Joanne Woodward and great actors like Billy Crudup and Vincent D'Onofrio uh, show up, but we don't see them on camera. So we can just kind of appreciate the words and they all do great performances because it is a performance, but nobody's overacting. They're, they're acting as if they're giving interviews. So, you know, after a while you forget that it's George Clooney's voice because you're listening to Paul Newman's thoughts and words beautifully done. It's called The Last Movie Stars. So a lot of good stuff out there. Oh, I got, I, before I say goodbye to you guys from this episode, uh, we got to mention Nope. Jordan Peele's latest film just now arriving in theaters. But that's why back at the Haywood Ranch, as the only black-owned horse trainers in Hollywood, we like to say since the moment pitches could move, yeah, skin in the game. 
here. Nah, nah, nah. Run! You know, he did Get Out, and then he did Us, and then he's done Nope. And that is an opening trilogy of films that is unbelievably impressive. I loved Nope. I think this start that Jordan Peele's career as a director, obviously he's done a lot of stuff before these films, but it's reminiscent of when M. Night Shyamalan broke through, when Quentin Tarantino came on the scene in the 90s, where they're just all of a sudden by their third or fourth films, they're events. You know who the director is. You're excited about it because of the director. And of course, there's not a lot of directors we still have that kind of event feeling. Spielberg is still an event director. Tarantino remains an event director. And Jordan Peele is now in that category. When he's got a movie coming out, it becomes a big deal. I don't want to give anything away about Nope. There's a reason why the trailers and the advanced publicity has been so cryptic. Uh, I'll just tell you what you can see in the trailers and what people have talked about. And that is it's set on the only black-owned uh, Hollywood horse ranch and something mysterious appears in the sky and then all hell breaks loose. This is really funny. It's got some amazing references to a lot of other movies, including M. Night Shyamalan's Signs, certain Steven Spielberg films, certain Stanley Kubrick movies. Uh, but it's also a, a bold and original piece of work. I love that. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. It's called Nope. And let's end on that note. Thank you so much for listening to Screen Time with Rokan and Richard Roper. I'm Richard Roper, and we'll be back with another new podcast next week.